If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3, as we do the rest of the book of, uh, or the rest of the chapter of Mark chapter 3 before we push pause. And we got a good one in here for you today. Don't you dislike it when somebody misunderstands you? And you want to say, you got me all wrong. Have you ever said that? You got me all wrong. I'm telling you, sixth grade, uh, I still remember this. At the end of PE, we're getting changed back into our street clothes. And I turned around and my foot hit the corner of the locker and just absolutely obliterated one of my toes. It broke the toe in multiple spots. If you've ever had a broken toe, you know you really can't do anything. You can't walk, you can't run. And I know people jam toes, but we went to the doctor, that thing was shattered. And I had to go to the basketball coach the next day and tell him I can't play in the next game. And so I went down into his office and he wasn't even my basketball coach. He was the eighth grade coach. I was in sixth grade. He wasn't even coaching the team I was on. But I told him, coach, I broke my toe. I can't play the next game. And he stood up and just went off on me. And I'm in sixth grade. No, I'm just a little boy. I hadn't come close to hitting puberty yet. I'm just a little softy. And he stood up in his adult man voice and called me things that I'd never heard of. I'd never been called before. And he said, I know what you did. You didn't just accidentally kick the corner of the locker. You were in a fight, weren't you? You were down there messing with a whole bunch of other boys. You guys got in a fight and you kicked somebody and that's what broke your toe. And I didn't know what to say. That isn't what happened. What do you say? And I, because just who I was, I just froze. And I remember the way he was talking to me, the names he called me, and him coming up with this story, the only thing that I, I, didn't, I couldn't control it, a tear just went down my cheek. And then he started making fun of that tear. And I was like, I can't put the, if I could put the tear back in, I would. But you know the feeling, don't you? Of being misunderstood, being mis I just want to yell, you, you got me all wrong. That's not... What happened? Now, I know that's sixth grade basketball. It's inconsequential to the scheme of eternity and life. But we all have a major story. Actually, been to some, some sixth grade games. It is eternity to some people. But we all have a story of being misunderstood. Marilyn McCoy, uh, McCoy was teaching children's church. And by the way, for anybody in here who's ever taught children's church, we just want to thank you. Church, would you thank all of our children's workers? I got kids back there, so I'm thanking you. She was in Vermont. Uh, she was teaching children's church, and there was a bright-eyed little three-year-old girl with ponytails who was listening intently to the lesson. The lesson was about God wants us to get along and love each other, and God wants us to be one. And she kept repeating, God wants us to be one. And that little girl just started crying. And the teacher asked her, honey, what's wrong? And she said, I don't want to be one. I want to be four. You know. So you know how it is to be misunderstood. It may comfort us today to know that if anybody was ever misunderstood, it was Jesus. And he could have yelled, you got me all wrong. In today's passage, not only did his religious leaders misunderstand him, but his family misunderstood him. In Mark chapter three, beginning with verse 20, then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. 
And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Well, who is Beelzebul? That was a nickname that they gave for Satan. They weren't saying that Jesus was being influenced by Satan. They weren't saying he was being controlled by Satan. They were saying you are possessed by Satan. And they weren't saying you are possessed by the demons of Satan. They were, they were saying you are possessed by Satan himself. It was the ultimate backhand. Why did they start acting like this? Well, if you go back up to verse 20, I think there's one word that stood out to me that tells us why. Then Jesus entered a house and what's the next word? Again, a large crowd followed. Uh-oh. It wasn't that a large crowd followed one time. It's that they kept following Jesus. He was becoming bigger than the Pharisees. Can everybody say jealousy a little bit? The green-eyed monster has appeared. Jealousy has a way of blinding us to the good in people. I was reading an article this week called Five Reasons Why Jealousy is the Most Dangerous Emotion on Earth. You say, no. It's not the most dangerous. Wait a minute. There's people that are spending a lifetime in prison right now because of a crime that they committed because of jealousy. It it, it can send your entire life into a life sentence in prison. I was reading about a guy in California who gets so jealous of other guys looking at his wife that whenever his wife leaves the house, he makes her in her car put a mannequin in the passenger seat so that other guys will not hit on her thinking that is her boyfriend. That's jealousy. There's a lady in England who has been dubbed the most jealous woman in the world. She has been diagnosed with Othello syndrome, a disorder that leads to extreme jealousy. Every time her husband leaves the house, even if it's for 10 minutes, this is true story, when he comes back in the house, he has to take a polygraph test. She bought a polygraph machine, even if he just goes out to the garden. When he comes back in, he has to take a polygraph test and he has to tell the truth on that thing. One man in 2013 divorced his wife for kissing a horse. And when he called her out on it, she refused to apologize for kissing the horse. And so he divorced her. The Pharisees were so blinded by Jesus's popularity, they were looking at the God of the universe and called him Satan. Beelzebul, by the way, just so you know, a little background, is the Lord of the Flies comes from Baal in the Old Testament, Beelzebub. They changed it to Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, but they weren't referring to Lord of the Flies. Where do flies land in the middle of a cow pasture? Oh, come on, you're from Texas, you know. Cow patties, that's a kind way. Cow dung, Margot, dung. They were calling Jesus the dung God, the Lord of the dung. And that's a, Pharisees misunderstand him, But guess who else misunderstand him in this passage? Did you catch it? His own family. Look at verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is crazy. Have you ever had a family member look at you and say you're crazy? Jesus' own own family thought Jesus was crazy. And you think, why would they do this? Why would they say that? Three reasons why I came up with real quick. Number one, it could have been because Jesus left a good job to do vocational ministry. He was a carpenter, 
probably. Good job, good pay. Why would you leave a good paying job to do ministry? Did you know that there are some people who look at us who do vocational ministry and they say, you are out of your mind? Did you know that? Oh, they're out there. I had a guy one time tell me this, maybe someday, Nathan, you'll get a real job and do something productive with your life. Well, thank you for this wonderful conversation. I uh, remember, this probably 10 years ago, nine years ago, I coached a kid in football, he played football and baseball for me. He was, his name was Steve. He was a, he was a good athlete. He was an amazing musician. He just picked up an instrument, could figure out a, an instrument almost immediately. Amazing musician. He was a great student. He got academic scholarships at some of the best universities in the nation. It was a senior year, and I didn't know he had made this decision, but when I'm walking out of the grocery store. His mom comes running up to me in the parking lot, and there's Steve's mom. And they're, they're known to be Christian, a Christian family in the, in the neighborhood. And she comes up to me in tears, and she says, have you heard what Steve did? I said, no, what'd he do? She said, he has decided to go to Bible college. And she just started crying. And I said, that's great. No. She was bawling and she said, how is Steve going to take care of me now? <laughs> Do you know who you're talking to right now? There are people that look at it that way. He had all this talent. Don't throw it down the drain from history. Maybe that's why the fan, Jesus, what are you doing? Going around starting these little exhibitions, these little speeches. Maybe it was because Jesus wouldn't back down from the Pharisees. There are certain groups you don't mess with. The mafia, if the mafia, and I really don't know, I'm just, I've watched a lot of movies, okay? But you, you don't mess with the mafia. You keep the peace, you do what it takes just to, and the Pharisees were the mafia. You don't mess with the Pharisees and Jesus wouldn't back down. And maybe they thought, man, you're out of your mind. Just back down from these guys. Or number three, maybe it was because he was so busy. This was in verse 20. He was so busy, he was missing meals. Now, come on. You never get that busy to miss meals. And you know how it goes. Maybe the family's following Jesus. Maybe they're missing meals. They're getting mad. And they, they became this. Have, have you ever seen this word right here, hangry? Do you know anybody in your family who ever gets hangry? Is there anybody? We have some hands going up. You're angry and hungry at the same. It's a bad combination. Jay, don't point at Val. Good night in the morning. Maybe the family got hangry in this passage right here. I don't know. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him again and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. By the way, Abraham Lincoln said that exact same statement in 1858, in the state of Illinois, the Republican Convention, state convention. And who was he quoting? He was quoting Jesus from Mark 3. Verse 25. That's where Lincoln got that. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Jesus gives a practical reason why the Pharisees are wrong, but here he gives a spiritual reason why they're walking on thin ice. Look at verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. It is what we often call the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. Have you ever heard of that? 
is there a sin that God won't forgive? Well, Jesus said in verse 28, there's no sin that God won't forgive. But then he said in verse 29, there is a sin that God will never forgive. So which one is it? Isn't that contradictory? No, this isn't contradictory. Let me explain the unpardonable sin. And by the way, whenever we talk about the unpardonable sin, there's always a question that pops up in all of our minds. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have you ever wondered that? Have I committed this unforgivable sin? We've all wondered. I don't remember about 15, probably about 15 years ago, there's a group of young men who videoed themselves blaspheming the Holy Spirit on video. And then they posted it on YouTube to get as many hits as they could possibly. They thought it was funny. They were laughing. They were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit on video. Now, are those boys destined to an eternity in hell, no matter if they ever repent or not? Have they committed the unpardonable sin? I actually don't think so. I don't think the unpardonable sin is a sin that you commit in one moment, at one place, at one time. And once you commit it, that you're out no matter what you do from then on forward. Give me about three minutes to explain the unpardonable sin. Just kind of a side topic of today's message about being misunderstood. We need to first understand what the Holy Spirit does. In John 16, verse 8, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is this. It is to convict unbelievers that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And it is also... He's also doing it in us who are saved. Anytime you commit a sin, do you feel it? Something doesn't feel right. There's a conscience that there's something bugging at you. You shouldn't have did that, Nathan. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. Convicting me of sin. Now here's, here's the unpardonable sin. When you get to the end of life and you breathe your last tear and you're standing before God, and if you get to that point where God has spent your entire life trying to woo you and pull you in and draw you to the Lord and draw you to Jesus and point you to salvation and get you to admit you need the forgiveness of sins. And if you spent your entire life saying no, 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 no to Jesus over and over and over and over again. And you get to that point and you're standing before God, he will not forgive you of your sins. That's the unpardonable sin. It isn't so much about God's refusal to forgive you. It's about our refusal to accept his forgiveness. It's not so much that God won't forgive. It's that he can't forgive someone who doesn't want forgiveness. That's the unforgivable sin. All other sins, he will forgive. But if you don't think you need forgiveness, he won't forgive any of your sins. There isn't anybody that's ever going to stand before God with only one sin unforgiven. You're either going to stand before God with all your sins forgiven, or you're going to stand before God with none of your sins forgiven because you committed the unpardonable. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need a savior. I'm not a sinner. First John says anybody who says that they have no sin, they are a liar. That's the unpardonable sin. Now, there's a mini truth that comes off the big truth of this, and that is this. It, it deserves recognition. The longer you say no to the Holy Spirit in your life, if, if you've got a sin you're committing right now, and let's, I'm just going to throw out an example. Let's say you're embezzling money from your company. I don't know. If you have been embezzling money from your company for a year, two years, three years, four years, and the Holy Spirit has been telling you, stop it, 
stop it, stop it, stop it. And you keep saying no to the Holy Spirit. What, I don't know how this works, but somehow over the course of saying no continually, your heart begins to harden. Are you listening? Your heart hardens and it gets harder and harder to say yes to Jesus over the course of time. Maybe you've met somebody who has no spiritual sensitivity. And when you talk about the things of God and the things of church and the things of Jesus, they don't, they don't even care what has happened. Over time, they've said no so many times. It's not that God won't forgive. It's that their heart is getting harder and harder. And so, and so I, I would say this, if, you've, if you're involved in something, if you're involved in a sinful behavior right now, knock it off. Stop it. Because the longer you say yes to it, to the sin and not the Holy Spirit, the harder your heart's gonna get and you are gonna become blinded spiritually and you're gonna get to the point where you can't be broken. You can't be humbled. You'll never fall on your knees before God, which is what it takes to get forgiveness of sins. So the question, have I committed the unforgivable sin? The the answer to that for you, if you're in this room today, the answer is probably no. If you care about the answer to that question, the answer is probably no. If there's anything in your heart right now which says, I hope I haven't committed the unpardonable sin, the answer is you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin because your heart is still sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. The person who has committed it is the person who could care less to the answer to that question. That was a side sermon on the major sermon, but verse, verse 30, he said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting, uh, was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, this is just amazing. Who are, my, who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is shocking. Jesus is teaching his primary relationship with man is not genetic, it's spiritual. In a culture that was highly patriarchal, highly family-centered, mom and brother and sisters out there trying to get to me, and he says no. He's saying his primary relationship with us is not genetic, it's spiritual. At this point in Mark 3, The relationship between Mary and Jesus is not primarily any longer mother to son, but sinner to savior. He didn't shirk his responsibilities as a son at the cross. Jesus took care of his mom with John. He didn't shirk those responsibilities, but it's now sinner to savior. The primary relationship between the brothers of Jesus and Jesus is no longer brother to brother. It is now servant to Lord And we know this because James and Jude, who are brothers of Jesus, writes a book called James and Jude in the New Testament, and they don't even mention that they're brothers of Jesus in that book. They call themselves a servant of Jesus Christ. You don't call yourself a servant of one of your siblings if you have siblings. You know that. Unless you really are a servant, and he is Lord. The church is a showcase of this. Here's what happens. Sometimes... Oftentimes, Christians develop a stronger bond 
with this family than with your blood family. That can happen, and it often happens. You can end up with a stronger bond with your spiritual family than with your blood family. But I got to tell you, the best case scenario is when your blood family is also your spiritual family. I don't want to embarrass them, but I'm going to embarrass them. The Ontiveros family back there, there have been Sundays, and it's, I guess it's not today because Chris and Dakota isn't here, but there are Sundays where we have had five generations of Ontiveros, uh, members of the Ontiveros family in here singing and taking communion and listening to God's word, starting with Mary all the way down to Dakota. And I got to tell you, that's just awesome. The best world is when your blood family is also your spiritual family. For me, it is that way, but we're not that physically close as you guys. My parents live about 14 hours away, so we see them about two times a year now. But when my earthly parents are my spiritual parents, they led me to the Lord, and they have grown me in the Lord, and they have shown me a house. They showed me how to raise a family, putting God first in every single decision we ever made every time. Well, that stuck with me. And so though I don't see mom and dad very often anymore, every time we get together, we just laugh and laugh. And for us, that means making fun of each other. So we just rag on each other and dad makes fun of me and I make fun of him back and we fall over laughing and our stomach hurts and we share meals together. We share crisis together. But whenever we share crisis together in our family, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. It's not that we don't grieve, but we, we grieve in a way that we know it's going to be okay. If this is the last time we see each other, we're going to be together forever and eternity. It's going to be okay. The best is the earthly family is your spiritual family. I remember when my dad's dad, my grandpa, who got the whole thing kick-started with keeping God number one, he was a farmer in Southern Illinois, never farmed one time in his life on Sunday, one time. And he always had the best crops in the area. Nobody could ever figure it out. But he always put God number one. And I remember when he passed away and I was just a kid, I was 11 years old, but I remember watching my family grieve and I thought, man, they're crying, but they're crying differently. They're not crying as though this is the end of the world. They're not crying as if this is just, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. There was grieving, but it was okay because we're gonna be with Grandpa Orville forever someday. I'm gonna spend eternity with him. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter four teaches us. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. He doesn't say Christians don't grieve. He says Christians don't grieve like those who have no hope. And so that's what you have when you have that together. That's the sermon. Here's three quick applications on how to handle being misunderstood. Number one, misunderstandings are occasionally unavoidable. Be realistic. They're going to happen. 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you know where this plays out the most? This plays out in politics. I know you think that all politicians get along, don't you? Okay, you guys don't watch TV. Here's what happens. 
there's a little tweet that doesn't mean anything, but it gets, re, it gets misconstrued on the other side. And what does the other side do? Oh, they want up it. And they send a tweet back that's a little bit worse. And then what does this side do? Oh, they want up it. And then what does the next side do? They have a news media conference thing. And then they have report, and then they write an article and then they, and then they, they're, then they're at war with each other. And it all started with one tweet that got misunderstood that got taken out of context. Hello. Now that's one thing for that to happen in the world. That's a whole other thing to happen in God's house with God's people. Learn to brush off an offense. Look at this verse, Proverbs 19, verse 11. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Would you read that aloud with me? It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Next time you're offended, it's to your glory. If you can just suck it up and overlook it. That's what that means right there. Do you know what we end up committing on ourselves? Here's here's a new word for you, new dictionary, English word. It is called, I think think there is a slide. It's called a suicide. We commit a suicide on each other. All because there wasn't a text that was responded to and we assume the worst. Oh, he didn't answer his phone. He must be cheating on me. (laughs) You know, he didn't look at me right. And we end up assuming and really committing murder in our hearts because we have committed a suicide against each other. And wars start that way. If you ever look at history, why did World War II begin? Because there was a World War I. Why did World War I begin? Because of a suicide. How many lives could have been saved if there wasn't an original a suicide? It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And then James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, here it is, because human anger does not, does not, does not, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Where do you think James got that from? Where do you think he learned? Where do you think he saw that modeled, slow to speak, slow to become angry? Well, he grew up with a brother named Jesus. Where do you think he got that? Now, James could... James could write James 1, 19 and 20. By the way, James was in the crowd in Mark 3. He was one of them that was saying Jesus was crazy. And then he turns around and writes that. So when you're in the vocational ministry, you hear this, uh, but I think you've heard it. Have you ever heard, I'm not gonna be a part of a church because they have disagreements in church. Have you ever heard that? Well, yeah, we do because we're a family. Have you ever heard of a family that didn't have disagreements? Raise your hand if your family's ever had a disagreement and don't lie in church. It's confession time. (laughs) Family, yeah, we have disagreements. You bet we do. By the way, some of the heroes of our faith, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, they had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways. They did ministry side by side together for years. Sharp disagreement. Philippians chapter three, there's two ladies. I don't want to pick on just two guys. I'm going to pick on the ladies as well. There's a lady named Syntyche and Euodia who weren't getting along. Philippians four says, Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Can everybody say catfight? No, don't, 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 don't say that. Euodia means in the original language, fortune. 
Sintiki means aroma. So what you have here is lucky and stinky. We're having a fight. I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, and Paul says, he, he doesn't address the issue. What's the issue? We don't know. We just know they're not getting along. You're Christians. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Act like it. And he doesn't stop there. He talks to the rest of the church in Philippi, verse 3, and he says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, he's talking to the church, help these women get along. Don't take sides. Help these women get along. They've served side by side in the cause of the gospel. Do whatever it takes. Remember, you're in the Lord. Number two. Okay, number one, misunderstandings are going to happen. Be realistic. Don't lose your mind when they happen. Number two, misunderstandings are sometimes unexplainable. Be silent. There are times when you need to take a clear defense of your position. And there are times when there's nothing you can say that's going to help it. You know what I'm talking about? No matter what you say, it's going to muddy the waters. Sometimes you find yourself in a predicament and you're being misunderstood and an explanation only makes it worse. Two buddies were having coffee together. One asked the other buddy, how's your wife doing? He said, she died and went to heaven. He said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, no, that's not the right answer. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I, I mean I'm glad. Oh, that, that's not the right answer. I meant I'm surprised. Oh, <laughs> sometimes there's nothing you can say that's right. And you just keep digging the grave a little bit, even when you're telling the truth. Ah, this still gets to me. Um, I'm guessing seven, eight years ago, there was a junior girl in high school, a junior in high school, sweet gal. She called me at the church, wanted to meet with me, had some biblical questions, some personal questions. So we met. Um, but at the end of the meeting, she looked at me and said, Nathan, can I hug you? And I froze. And I said, no. Now you need to know why I said no. We had a rule at the church. You don't meet with someone of the opposite sex more than once. The second time you push them to a female counselor, you can understand why. And when you meet with them that first time, you keep your office door open for anybody that walks by can see what's going on inside. That, that way there can be no accusations. And whenever you meet, you stay behind your desk and she stays on the other side. That way there's a physical barrier. You get it, 2019. I mean, you, I don't need to tell you why we did that. And everything was going fine, but then she asked, can I hug you? And I just thought, man, if somebody walks by in that moment and sees me hugging her, I'm done. And so I said no. I still don't know if I did the right thing. But she had a look on her face. She stormed out of there. And she left. The next day, her mom shows up. Mama Bear is there. And her mom walks in and she looked at me and said, what did you do to my daughter? I, and I explained it to her. I said, she wanted to give me a hug, but you gotta understand in today's world, sometimes girls can make accusations. There's nothing I can do once the accusation is out there. And she looked at me with the worst look and said, are you calling my daughter one of those girls? Well, no. I, <laughs> and that's when I learned there was nothing I could say at that point. And she marched out, and I never saw them back in church again. And I learned, just keep your mouth shut. And sometimes that's going to happen. Number three, misunderstandings are often eventually cleared up. Be patient. 
as badly as Jesus was treated by his enemies, the truth came out later, he was the son of God. Even the Roman centurion who nailed him to to the cross, the text says, after he dies, the Roman centurion looks up and says, surely he was the son of God. His family were not believers in this text. They thought he was crazy. But after the resurrection, it was his family who's part of the 120 in the upper room who started the church and prayed for the church. If you're innocent, eventually your name will be vindicated. Truth has a way of surfacing to the top to those who matter most. And when that happens, your patience and your silence will only enhance people's view of you. I don't have a dramatic ending to this message, but I do have a dramatic passage. And it begins in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here's what Jesus just did in this passage. He invited you into a family where the heavenly father will never reject you. Maybe you've been rejected by your family like Jesus was rejected by his family, but now he's inviting you into a family with a perfect father who will never reject you. And by the way, if you're a parent in here, you've dropped the ball somewhere with your children. You know you have. You're not the perfect parent and your parents have dropped the ball with you. And by the way, you're going to drop the ball with your kids and your kids are going to drop the ball with their kids at some point. This isn't a matter of if you have the perfect family, but he is calling you into the perfect father. I run into people all the time. Last thing. I run into people all the time who want to blame their parents for their problems. I got to tell you, I grow weary of it. Of blaming mom and dad for this or that or my behavior, or I'm struggling with this. There comes a point, everybody. And, and, I, and I tell them, I hope you never become a parent because your kids are going to throw it right back in your face someday. Hope that doesn't happen, but you're going to make mistakes. And I've talked to parents on the other side who sit there in tears and I wish I could take it back. I know I made mistakes when they were 15, when they were 16, when they were 17. I would, yeah, all of us, but he's calling you in. He's drawing you in and the heavenly father will never oppose you. He will never reject you. He will never go against you. He loves you and he gave a son to die for you. Let's pray. Father, all of us in here today, have had family problems, whether it's uh, the, the, the blood family or the spiritual family. That's what, fa- that's what families do. And there's misunderstandings, but nobody's ever been misunderstood like your son and he handled it perfectly. Thank you for the example that he gave us. Thank you for the example on the cross. Thank you for how he handled it in maturity and how we can follow in his steps 
today. Father, help us be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.